Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. wife Kate Holmes who's also a musician um, used to go to the same yoga class as I did in Notting Hill and this was like in the 90s and um, we became friends and then I became friends with Alan it was just kind of really seamless and then when they had a child I became a godmother oh so you're really close yeah we're very very close and um, Alan's a mentor to me and he has been for a really long time he had a fractious relationship with mark smith right and, but um so he was a little um his view of the fall was slightly tainted for a while oh sorry somebody's just come into my house so i have to um the, the dog might start barking and all hell might break loose. little gladys little gladys might start barking small dog big personality pretty much exactly <laughs> <laughs> kind of like me <laughs> uh, yeah anyway so yeah that's how that's how i met him so, you know, he's, he helps me out a lot and advises me a lot. He even named the first Bricks and Extricated record, you know. 
and uh, he quite often listens to stuff and sort of guides me on what he thinks should be a single. He's just got the most incredible ear and amazing business sense in music. He's just a magical guy. He certainly is. Mm-hmm. Um, you were born in Los Angeles, is that correct? That is correct. And so you were there. Do you remember much of the 60s in California? Because I recently watched, I wasn't a big fan of the film, but I recently watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. And that time and that place, just, you know, from a cultural point of view, is about as magical as, you know, modern day life gets, right? Do you yeah. remember much of it? Well, I wrote a book, you know, called The Rise of the Fall and the Rise, which is my memoir which is published by Faber and Faber. And the, it's in three parts. So The Rise is about growing up in California in the 60s. So I remember vividly details, and there's a particular chapter called The Pink Mansion in it, which just describes the, the life as a child when I grew up in this amazing, like, derelict, almost ni- late 1940s mansion in the Hollywood Hills, and what went on there. Um, and I tried to write, you know, when I've read other people's memoirs, normally the the early part where they talk about their childhood and their grandparents and this and that, you're like, okay, just shut the fuck up and get to and the get part to the where you're famous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did you get famous and what, you know, whatever. So I decided when I wrote mine to actually transport people back to California, to LA in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and 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 really get them to to feel as if they were there with like the f- colors and smells and feelings and energy of what was happening, um, and yeah, so it's a really important and visceral part of my life. And you're right, it was a magic time to be there. So much was happening, and um, once upon a time in Hollywood was when when I saw it, I was beyond blown away because it was the closest uh, it's come to anything that I've seen other than documentaries. And in fact, I loved it so much I saw it twice in one week. Really? Yeah, and I'll see it again. I just found it too long was my my only concern. It, it wasn't it. long it was, enough for me. Really, really? Yeah, I was like, bring it. It was so fantastic. So he really did reimagine and, and capture that, that time and that place and that energy and that vibe. I, I did. I did. And that did. And, and and so, yeah. And I'm reading another book now called uh, West of Eden. Okay. Which is another one that goes back there and does it. Because I'm, uh, uh, and I'm also working on a novel about that time growing up in the canyon. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So it's like literally my epicenter. <laughs> Did you have what you might call a show business upbringing? Was, wasn't your mum in, in television? Yeah, I, she was. My, my father was a Beverly Hills psychiatrist. And my mother was a producer. Uh, I mean, she start she started life. I mean, my mother is quite quite a role model for me. But eventually, she ended up after having worked with Bobby Kennedy on his campaign um, on the PR team, and actually with him when when he was shot. Really, uh, she moved on to becoming first a researcher at C- at CBS on the show, the primetime Sunday night show called Sixty Minutes, uh-huh. which is a, a kind of a news sh- a news interview show. And she worked her way up to being a producer. And then she was an anchor woman as well. And then she went on and moved to Chicago and became the head of the film commission for the state of Illinois and was responsible for bringing loads of movies to film in Illinois, including like Blues Brothers, Ordinary People. Yeah, I mean, you name the, the Omen, you know, you name it. So, yeah, so I did have a showbiz upbringing. I mean, I was taken to CBS 
every day after school to to sit in to sit in the sound studios when my mom couldn't you know she was a single mom my dad was like off doing his thing with another wife whatever but um so you know and was it just you you didn't have any siblings no yeah. only child so um from that marriage so uh and from my mother's only child but my father went on to have more but um so she would take me to i pick me up from school and i'd go to cbs and i'd sit in the sound studio and watch the taping of the sunny and share show wow like day after day when you know it wasn't even an audience it was just me one child in there and um again that that's in the book as well because i learned so much from watching and being around share no doubt yeah what an amazing person she is and especially then i think that she's so different to the share that people know now from the kind of vocoded do you believe in life after love i think if you're a generational kind of difference you'll remember the hippie share and the well i mean what watching her work sitting there all day take after take rehearsal after rehearsal like it wasn't the actual taping it was all the rehearsals with the guests and the skits and the things and I, you know, I wa- would watch her come come in and rehearse in her street clothes, and then they would do like a costume and a light check, and I would see her transform in these amazing gowns and things, and they, you know, because they'd have to test the costumes, and um, it, she had, she has like huge, like beyond charisma. I mean, it's something um, that's almost transcendental. You know, you're just like unbelievable and then her work work ethic you know what it takes to make a show and how many times you have to go over it and how many times you screw up and how they tweak it and so I that really cut my teeth um in terms of learning how what it takes to to create tv and music and what was the music that was switching you on from a young age what were the bands or the groups or the singers that set you on your path so the earliest stuff I remember very early was that my mother would put records on for me to go to sleep to. Okay. And those things were stuff like Beethoven and Carnival of the Animals and kind of gentle stuff. But then my mother's record collection obviously had a big say (laughs) in shaping me. So she, she thankfully had great taste. So she had like the Mamas and the Papas and Creedence Clearwater and the Beatles, you know, um, stuff like that. And then I, the first time, the first record I ever bought was um, Carol King Tapestry. Amazing. Because I was just really young, like, can't remember how old I was, like seven or eight. And um, I would be sent to summer camp, day camp. Um, because obviously my mother worked all the time. So in the summer I'd go to day camp and like we had um, hippie bus drivers that would pick us up in, in camper vans, which later we referred to as fuck trucks, but they (laughs) thankfully weren't then. And they would pick us up and they'd, you know, pick up all the kids in our neighborhood that were going to big rock ranch where it was. And that the ranch, the camp was up in like Topanga Canyon, um, just kind of uh, near Malibu Canyon. And they'd pick us up and they'd have the radio playing every day. So I became became aware of like the hit songs that were on the radio. And they were things like uh, Carol King and the Carpenters. But what really struck me was the hooks in the song because I thought it was magical because I'd go home and I couldn't get those songs out of my head. I couldn't get those hooks and I would sing the words over and over and I... I, I would look forward to hearing them each day. All I really cared about was listening to songs on the radio to and from camp. So I took what pocket money I had and bought my first record. And the second record was Janis Joplin Pearl. So um, 
obviously I was attracted to strong female. Oh, and then, you know, of course the mamas and the papas, I was quite obsessed with them. That came from my mom, my mom's collection. But again, so I was really looking, looking towards strong female singer songwriters. So it certainly shaped me. And melody was always the, the main draw, was it for you? As you say, that magic of not the, being able to shake this, this hook from your mind. It's the melody and the lyric to, together. And um, I think quite soon after that, I started to write my own stuff. And then eventually, I, about maybe a year or so later, you, you know, I was raised by a succession of babysitters because my mother worked, single mom. And um, she would get these cool, most of the time, cool hippie babysitters that could drive, you know. Right. And, um, they, and these girls were like great and they were all sort of like hippie, peace, love, whatever. But uh, this one babysitter called Kathy played guitar and sang protest songs. So uh, she taught me my first chords on a guitar and pretty soon after that I was given a baby, I was so obsessed, I was given a, a little baby three quarter size acoustic guitar um, and that's kind of how it started and immediately started writing and playing. And did you study, was it theatre and literature you Correct. went to study? And yeah. that, was, that was where? Bennington College. So is that East Coast? Bennington College is in Vermont. Right. It's, um, I was in a very special class, um, which has just been a massive article written about it in um, Esquire in America. And uh, in my class was Donna Tart, Brett Ellis, Jonathan Lithum, Jill Eisenstadt, and uh, we were all in creative writing together. And so it, it was just an ex extraordinary, it was very small, very small liberal arts college of only 600 people, including graduate students, in a, an isolated campus in Vermont, um, of a haunted and historic place, actually, Bennington. A lot of great, great artists and creative people have come from that school. Um, it's very free. There are no tests. Um, there are evaluations. But um, I lasted a year and a half in the school because when I got there, I was there to do theater and writing. But my minor was stringed instruments. And pretty much immediately, I formed a band and started writing, Ta taught myself how to play bass bass player <laughs> and uh people were saying you shouldn't even be in school this is too you're too good you could you know this you're super talented you should go and do this for real and i thought fuck it that's what i'm gonna do so i left school and uh went took actually i took a non-resident term but it was during that term that i met the fall met mark smith and ended up from from the time i left i don't know six six within six months in the fall were you going to New York a lot? And were you around <laughs> the CBGB yeah. punk scene? Yeah. What kind of an impact did all that well, music and art have on you? Well, I was um, by then quite uh, kind of... Uh, American punks are different than British punks, but You're quite very much so, yeah. gothy, punky, rockabilly, dark, like I wore always... Uh, I, I, we, I mean, the, we, I was an Anglophile with music, so I would just be collecting every sort of cool British band... I would come across. Who were the first ones that opened that floodgate? When you just thought, "Wow, Britain's where it's at." Well, it well it moved. the The earliest ones were like Bowie and Zeppelin, but then it moved into the Clash very quickly. So, like the Clash, the Sex Pistols, uh, 
the cure, the buzzcocks. Um, You're talking my language there, Bricks. Yeah, yeah. Wait, but um, and but the biggest one of all was Joy Division, which just changed my. I became truly obsessed. I do have OCD when it comes to music, so when I hear something that I love, I play it over and over repetitively uh, until I understand every single nuance of it. I weirdly do the same with... Gladys, Gladys. <laughs> Gladys, honey, quiet. I weirdly do the same with food. So sometimes okay. I eat the same meal over and over again. To perfect the recipe. Yeah, no, yeah. or no, till I can't, till I've consumed it all and it's imbued within <laughs> me and I need not ever go there again, you know? <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I, I, so the... So, I don't remember that much about CBGBs. I remember did, like Danceteria more and Max Maxwell's uh, Max's Kansas City. Yeah, more. Who did you see from from that time period live? I did you check saw... out like Television or Suicide or no, Early Blondie or Yeah, yeah. I saw many, 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 many times the Ramones. Wow. And I would say uh, they also totally, as much as Joy Division did, they shaped me as well. And then I ended up meet, you know, meeting them. I mean, I, I saw pretty much everybody, really. So, I guess it was a small scene at that time, right? And everybody kind of hung out at the same spots. Probably all knew each other. A lot of bands on the same bill. Yeah, always. And it was just so exciting and so great. And it was just so much fun getting dressed up in black Macs and pointy boots and I'd dye my hair every week and get different piercings and white out my face and coal my eyes black like it was just so fun to get dressed up and be part of it and just it, it was just an amazing time an amazing time to be like a teenager a young adult yeah and I well, remember right? I was underage this whole time yeah so I was d doing everything illegally drinking illegally going to bars illegally everything so it was like super exciting what did your mum make of it all? She was, my mother was super nurturing in terms of, um, they, so they knew that they, they knew I wasn't like a, a quote unquote, a normal kid. Um, but she, I was like clearly artistically talented from a really young age on lots of different things. So she nurtured me and sent me to special schools, special classes, did whatever she could and was very accepting of any creative outlet I had. In terms of naughtiness, um, she knew that she'd instilled certain sensibilities into me and what else could she do? You know, I didn't, she was pretty, pretty liberal with me. Um, I mean, they were strict when I was really young, but then, you know, what could they do? They just accepted it. And of course, you know, when I went off to join the fall and, and you know, after knowing Mark Smith for six weeks. How old were you then? Just 20. Just 20. They, um, she made me get a round trip ticket. She, Even though you knew you probably weren't coming back or, or where, were you, where was your head at? No, I I was following my dream. Yeah. It was it. You know, I wanted to play music, and that was like you know this is what was happening, and this is the the world was unfolding in front of me, and there was no way I was going to sit back and say mm, I think I'll put it off for like three more years so I can like you know finish college or exactly, something. Exactly. Yeah. Forget that. No, live life now. So <laughs> yeah. 
So you, what's Manchester like? Obviously, you've kind of studied the music, Buzzcocks Joy Division, so you're familiar with certain cultural elements. What's it like as a cultural experience for you moving there to this city that must have been vastly different, but in many ways perhaps the same as somewhere like New York around that time? Well, again, in the book is, is probably the most famous chapter in the book that's been quoted so many times by people, which was what happened on the day I moved to Manchester, which was, remember back in the day, there was no internet. There was no, there was no, there was nothing to tell, to prepare me for what it was. I had been to London and I'd been to Oxford. I had been, you know, once in the summer on a family holiday. In my mind, I'm, I knew Manchester was up north and I imagined it cobblestone streets and ivy-covered cottages and more quaint and rural than London but I had no idea my mother tried to warn me she said I hear it's very industrial I hear it's uh, quite I think she used the word depressing <laughs> um, but I, I I was like it didn't matter to me because I was following my dream but I came from um, a middle-class American upbringing maybe upper middle class um, some would say privileged. Uh, however, I was always, I, I did, you know, I wasn't hurting financially really, but I mean, family wise, but I did, had the most dysfunctional family, really fucked up. And uh, pretty much the only stability was my mother, but she was absent a lot. So, but I, so I was moving from a certain type of lifestyle, which I hadn't, ever lived outside my parents' house or, you know, uh, Bennington for <laughs> a year and a half. And I, and Mark Smith painted a picture. I mean, he was, he was so passionate about Manchester and the North, obviously. And he painted this picture, he, you know, he, I remember him telling me about the local pub and all these things and the characters and the people. And anyway, so made it sound quite poetic and yeah and also by this point um the hacienda was in full swing yeah so and i was loved new order and anything to come out of factory records i mean that was kind of weirdly mecca so i was excited to to go there and experience it and it just seemed like you know a happening right beyond a happening and it seemed like the epicenter of cool mm. for sure so Anyway, we, I, I got, I, you know, I got to Manchester. I think we came off the train. I think I came to London first and then we, we took the train. We got off at Piccadilly Station and I was woefully unprepared for what Manchester was like in 1983. It was, it was, to say grey is not even, I mean, it's a complete understatement. It was like glowering grey I mean, desolate, heavy skies and just filthy red brick buildings that looked like horrific crimes had been committed in years past. And it was so bleak and it was almost like looking at everything in black and white. It was like, I was like, oh my God. And as we drove, we took a taxi from... Uh, Piccadilly train station and Mark would point out the must-see sites like Boddington's Brewery or <laughs> Strangeways Prison and I remember going past these 
squat little buildings with spray paint on them saying cash and carry and I was like what is that and it was like anyway so it was such a shock and then when I got to the um to the to the place where Mark lived it was it was called um uh, it was an old rectory and uh it was on rectory lane you know <laughs> and I was like wow this is amazing I can't believe you live here and he's like oh no I don't live in the whole building I just live in a flat at the top and as I walked walked in and you know this the stairs were covered in scrappy filthy psychedelic purple and black swirling carpeting and the smell of urine was permeating and the walls were stained with filth and walked up to the top and he said oh this is my door on on the left and on the right is a knocking shop and I'm like what's a knocking shop you know and so I went into the flat and it was like you know I mean he had warned me he said I'm not a rich man and I was like does it, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter <laughs> and uh got in there and it was like the, 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 it was a rented apartment for 25 pounds a week I believe and uh you know I mean it, it was impoverished the 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 uh, furniture was had ripped and shabby with springs coming th I mean it was just beyond and you know you had to flick on the immersion heater for the hot water or he had no fridge all the things all the milk and everything was on the windowsill I mean it was well he did have a fridge but it was the size of a cardboard box and broken anyway it was a big shock for me um at first you know to to get my head around the difference of lifestyle but the, but the fact of the matter is, I was with someone I loved. I was doing a job that was my dream come true. I fucking loved the band. I was so excited to be playing guitar. Like he, he brought me on to play guitar, not bass. Um, and it was like, pretty soon, I put on the rose-colored spectacles and saw everything through his eye and grew to love it there very much. And, you know, like I said, I'm a grafter and it didn't, after like the initial shock wore off in the first day, li literally, I was, you know, on my feet and get, getting on with it. So, um, you know, in accepting of my situation, no matter what. And, um, it didn't matter that we had no money and it didn't matter. You know, I was doing, when you do what you love and you have a passion, everything is fine. That's what, like, that's what makes life sweet. I agree. Know? So, um, yeah. What was the attraction to Mark as a young man when you first met him? Do you remember that feeling that you felt and your thoughts that went through your head when you first sat down and engaged with him? And, and initially when the very, on very first meeting him, I had a hard time understanding him because um, his accent was so thick, mm -hmm. uh, but, and I had only known about the fall re really a few weeks before I met him. And it, again, I, we had, my friend Lisa and I had been coming back from a rehearsal with our band and we, we stopped at our favorite record store called Wax Tracks and we were pawing through the import bins and she pulled out the fall and said, oh my God, have you heard this band? And I said, no, I've never heard of them. She said, you have to, you have to hear it, Brixton. It's amazing. So we took it home and I, it was slates and I looked at the album cover and I thought, oh, this is intriguing. There is no picture of some posing dickhead on the front of the cover. It's like, what is it? And I put it on and I was like gobsmacked because it was pretty much the most unique 
an intelligent music on every level that I'd ever heard. Unlike anything I'd ever heard, it was hypnotic and powerful and dark and poetic. I couldn't understand all the words, but it didn't matter because it was a musical Rorschach test. So whatever it unleashed in my psyche was right, you know, and there was strange scribbling on the cover of, of words like prole art threat and real Bert Finn stuff and something like man versus Asda or so I can't even remember <laughs> what all the things it said, but I was like, what is it? Anyway, I was utterly fascinated because it was so intelligent. So when I first met him, I, I had just seen them play. He looked a little scary to me, like he was not going to be a nice man. But even um, as a young man, he had that kind of presence. Well, he turned his back to the audience. He did things that were, he read from crumpled up paper. He didn't engage with the audience. It wasn't like a posturing, posing band. Mm-hmm. Yet the had Steve Hanley on the bass grinding out a groove and Paul Hanley on drums, such a deep, heavy hypnot. I was literally bewitched. So when I met him, I was interested more to get into his brain. Like he didn't, I didn't think he was like sexy or cute or anything like that. But or even approachable. Or he, or even I, I wasn't that worried about it. I didn't find I don't find people intimidating, and I'm not. Um, he just didn't look, you know, like he would be like a warm, fuzzy sort, mm-hmm. yeah, sort yeah, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but so we started talking and f- f- he, it was just got more and more fascinating. And of course, he then heard my music in the car because he said, what do you do? And I said, I'm in a band. He said, oh, do you have any tapes? And I had a demo tape and I put it on. And he, it, it, that was when he turned and he said, who wrote this? And I said, I did. And he said, you're a fucking genius. And so he must have started cooking up because Mark Riley had just quit. Right. So he must have been cooking up. Mm, might be interesting to get, you know, da, da, da. anyway. Um, but the more we hung out, the, the uh, pretty, you know, we just, the energy between us was absolutely off the scale of magnetic. It was soulmate stuff. Um, where, and, um, he, he was just so smart and he was actually super kind and very much in those days, a gentleman, um, very respectful. And, you know, it was, it was, he was amazing. He's just one of the greatest poets, lyricists that has ever graced this earth. And I, I, I honestly think he should have been poet laureate. What's wrong with this country? Yeah. Do you think that you got to see a side to him that a lot of other people didn't? Absolutely. Yeah. I know him better than anybody else on this earth. I knew him better. Yeah. I know him now in a different way. <laughs> what was the first song you wrote together? Uh, the first thing we did together was stuff off my demo tape that he took and then re- reappropriated. And uh, it was Hotel Bladell, which okay. was originally called One More Time for the Record on my demo. So he took it and then I sang the, so I played it on it, sang my original part and then he wrote uh, uh, lyrics on top of it. So it became a duet. And then, and then he used a couple other songs from that demo. And then I don't know what the first song that Creed came out of it, but maybe, I know I have to look back through the albums. It would have been stuff on Wonderful and Frightening, so... And was that the first proper album? Was Perverted by Language kind of already semi-done? Semi-done. Yeah. Semi-done. So you kind of joined halfway through the process of that. Yeah. 
<laughs> and then the next record was the one that you were involved with from from the get-go yeah i mean there was stuff on kicker conspiracy like there was stuff before perverted as well right but i didn't write any of that but somehow i think i was included in some of it what's your favorite tracks or perhaps favorite record that you worked on in the fall do you have one or a couple that stand out for just the, the experience of the creation and the, the end result and in terms of how you feel about it now as a work of art that's stood the test of time? Uh, pretty proud of Wonderful and Frightening, I have to say. Um, Nation Saving Grace, yes. Curious Orange, it was, so, sort of like from, oh, I can't, which came last, which came after, Ben Sinister or Friends? Things start. I think it's Friends, right? So Ben yeah. Sinister was first, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the third one you did, I think, Yeah, right? so parts of Ben Sinister, although um, their, their issues were starting to occur then. So in the very beginning, I really had, I was really free to create, and Mark was extremely receptive to everything. But... Uh, as time went on and things began to change, you know, for various reasons, um, creation became more difficult and it became more difficult to get my purity of my intention through mm -hmm. because there became a, maybe a competitiveness. It was, um, was that anything to do with you stepping outside yes. of the band and doing your own thing? Yes. Yeah. So he encouraged me so to do adult net. Originally when I came over, I was, the intention was for me not to be in the fall. It was for me to do adult net and for him to produce it and be the Svengali. And so that he was super encouraging. But when that started to really take off in his eyes, then he became a little bit, I would say, gently emasculated uh -huh. not anything to do with my intention but it was just the way he was old school yeah so we so i think there was uh, stuff going on and so it became the process of creating was not as pleasurable as the early days so i would but the, there are moments on all of the albums that i contributed to that i'm proud of the whole body of it I was reading a quote from what was the producer who worked with the band on on several records John of that Lucky? period. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was saying that Mark would just roll up in the morning and they'd be like special brew, vodka, speed, everything. Yes. Is that true? Yes, that's, that's true. That's the way he worked and lived. Yes, that's yeah. true. And uh, and if I'm to be completely honest, um, it was the escalation in drugs and drink that caused the difficulty. I would say because he was not as sharp as as he as I knew he could be as we all knew he could be you can hear it in his vocals you can you can you can hear the decay in the vocals there's less attack there's less intention it's sloppy but I know what he's capable of and it's it was frustrating for me although I was working with an absolute genius to be working with him watching a decline mm -hmm. It, it was must heartbreaking, be heartbreaking, really. yeah. It was heartbreaking and heartbreaking for me as an artist and me as a woman and me as a wife and all those things. Um, and you can never control somebody else. So uh, that's pretty much the truth. Did the other guys in the band have any influence or sway over his lifestyle or? Absolutely not. No. Nobody had sway no. over his lifestyle. You couldn't tell him to do anything. Not, not you know, he, he was a law unto himself. 
and once he got something in his mind, you know, it was he was a megalomaniac, you know. But I mean, and he would say, you can't, you can't run this band on a democracy, you know. So he would, he would, yeah, whatever, whatever. It is what it is, and that it's, it's the way it is, and it was, it's perfect in its way, you know. <laughs> Do you have any fun, fond touring memories? Like a million. Yeah. And, uh, any that really stand out? Choice anecdotes or life on the road with the four? I mean, my fondest memories are like of touring with Marsha because for up and for a long time, I was the only woman in the band. Mm -hmm. And Marsha was my friend who I knew from New York who'd been in a band called Khmer Rouge. And, uh, we need we needed her in the band to play keyboards and uh, I can't remember. Uh, and she, anyway, she's his hilarious. She's got one of the best senses of humor of any human I know. And uh, you know there were times you would go hysterical in the tour bus because you were just exhausted. And when I get exhausted, I start to laugh uncontrollably. <laughs> Almost like the Joker. Yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, yeah. 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 I just went no. to watch it last night. Yeah, what a I movie. did too. What a movie! Oh my god, I watched it last night. It's okay, unbelievable. If he doesn't get the Oscar, you know, I will eat my own. So powerful. It was amazing performance. Anyway, so but would what? Not I wouldn't laugh maniacally, but hysterically, and it, it's brilliant because laughing is just the best medicine ever. But obviously, no one's like that. But maybe it was like that. Anyway, she and I would just we would be relegated to the back of the tour bus where there is a curtained partition and a kind of like disco lounge at the back of a fancy <laughs> bus i think we had willie nelson's bus that we, you know he rented out for other bands and we were in the back we turn on the disco lights and we would just filth talk the whole time and i just remember we would do this game which is hilarious so we drive through these like shit kicker american redneck towns in the middle of the night on the way from somewhere to somewhere and we closed the curtains so that no one could see us in the front of the bus. And they'd all be like partying, taking speed, listening to driving. Gladys, 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 come here. Gladdy. Did you ever indulge in any of that stuff on the road? No, I didn't. Come here. I'll, well, I did, but I'll tell you. Come here, honey. Uh, you go downstairs, okay? Um, sorry. That's all good. Don't worry. Yeah, it's all good. I have a little guard pug. Um, so we would sit in the back of the bus and we would um, turn the lights on in our area, open the curtains like to the back windows of the bus, not so the, anyone in the front could see it. And we'd pull down our pants <laughs> and press our asses against the window. So as we drove through the little town in Texas, people would just see two big butts like driving <laughs> by illuminated mooning mooning we yeah we were like we would cry like for some reason we just thought it was the funniest thing is it referred to as mooning in the states yeah or it is yeah we would moon <laughs> to the moon um in terms of like drug and drinks you know i was not an angel but i've always been um a person who can i i need all of my wits and faculties focused to do my job which is play and sing music and um, I don't like anything to blur the edges of my focus and intention. So I never drink or take any substance or anything before I play, ever, to this day. Um, afterwards, I will 
absolutely have a drink. You know, there is always a bottle of champagne on the rider for me. <laughs> Amazing. So, yeah. Um, when you, well, I guess if we could talk about the, the exit from the fall, what was the determining factor in that? Or was it a series of events that just built over time? And The exit's also written about in my book. It was, there were two exits. Um, cause I rejoined again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the first exit was, um, basically, you know, my, our marriage had broken up. Mark had been, uh, having an affair with this teenage girl. Um, it, it, you know, I had the adult net and it was getting more and more unpleasant on the road. And I just couldn't, my heart was broken. Uh, I was just bad. And, um, I went, I had gone out to dinner with my agent and he said, I don't think you can have a foot in both camp camps. You know, I was torn up. They said, I think you have to make a choice between the fall and the adult net. So I chose the adult net because that was the one thing I really had control of. And being in the fall, I was getting, I, you know, I was having a breakdown pretty much. So I left in the middle of making extricate of which I wrote a lot and was uncredited. Um, which is why... Hence the band name Hence now. the band yeah. name. We're all extricated. Yeah. But I left in the middle of extricate. And uh, obviously, for you know, it was it was just... It was really unpleasant. But then... Um, but I got on with it and whatever. And then... Did you leave the UK originally? Uh, not originally. I stayed. Um, and then I had a relationship with Nigel Kennedy for a few years. And then when that went tits up, I just pat my bags and ran home because I was, by then I was, I was, I was not well, you know, I was, I was, I definitely had a breakdown and I was in all kinds of therapy and I, I, I had to completely change my life. So, um, yeah, I was broken. Then after four years or something, um, is your whole life just on pause during that time? Well, I, I decided to, I couldn't play music anymore. I couldn't write anymore. Inspiration was gone. I'd lost my writing partner, which was Mark. I, you know, once you're in a band like The Fall and you've got a writing partner like Mark, it's, you know, uh, sometimes once in a lifetime thing. Mm -hmm. Or uh, it's very, very difficult to find that kind of magic again. So I went, I decided I was going to go back and study acting, which is what I had been doing in college. So I eventually went back to LA and I worked as a waitress. Um, you know, I'd lost my house. I'd lost my marriage. I'd lost all my money by this point. I was living in Susanna Hoffs from the Bengals garage. And you played in that band for a time as well, right? Yeah, but not right away because I couldn't play music anymore. I was broken. So I just stopped completely and I worked as a waitress and then I studied acting at night. And eventually got got acting work, you know, and started to do TV commercials and plays and some parts in films. And um, and then after a couple of years, Susanna, who is like my music guardian angel, said to me, you know, I'm going to go back on the road again and I want to do an like a kind of solo acoustic tour. We'll do some bangle songs, some of my solo stuff. Would you, could you play bass and sing harmonies with me and a guitar player? 
and I was like, I don't even have a base anymore. I don't have any money. And then she's like, I'll buy you a base. I'll, please just come out. You know, I think it would be great. So I did. And I went out on the road with her and we had an amazing time. I did amazing things like play for for Al Gore on the steps of the Capitol, singing with Crosby, Stills and Nash and Susanna. And it was just amazing. And then Courtney Love got in touch and said, I see you're playing again. Why don't you come up and, you know, we need a bass player. Kirsten died or whatever. <laughs> sadly and uh so i did that i was in it for 24 hours and then mark called and said come back 24 hours in hole 24 hours in hole <laughs> literally yeah. she'll tell you that um and then i went back and um rejoined the fall and flew back and forth and uh so then the second time i left the fall and then i came back and it was a sinking ship it was not what it was why had. did he ask you back did he think maybe you could save the sinking ship yes he told me i need you to come and kick ass we we, we need you i need you was that easy for you to say yes to that offer? Was it easy for you to do? I was there like, ever any well, hesitation or? No, not really, because I thought, what am I going to do? Going to join Hall and uh, be a bass player and or go back to the fall, which begat everything, you know, and go back not as his wife, but as a co-writer and, a, you know, guitarist and, you know, in my own right. And I was by then over the breakup, way over the breakup. We were divorced by then. Um, and he was married and divorced from the girl he, whatever. So it didn't, I, it wasn't anything personal, but I would go back as a musician in my own right. And so I thought, and he knew he valued the magic of our songwriting and of my performance, it, live performance with the band. And so I thought, well, the, the fall is, is, is really the real deal. You know, mo one of the most inspirational and influential bands that have ever graced this earth. So why not go back? <laughs> but you can never go back. That's and it, nothing right? ever stays the same. Everything flows and everything changes. And when I went back, it was a disaster. I stayed for two albums. I wrote songs. I had been writing actually from the whole Susanna period. I had actually done another album with Marty Wilson Piper from the church. And he and I had written a bunch, so that album exists. And um, I had written a bunch of great songs and I came back with a bag full of songs, which I handed to Mark. And I said, you know, uh, uh, there, there's a bunch of them and they're on those albums, but you know, he t took the songs that I wrote and didn't, you know, cause he needed the money, just didn't put my name on the writing credits, but they were a hundred percent mine, like lyrics and it was fucked up. But I didn't know that till later. It was too late. Anyway, I went back and drugs and drink had taken its toll. I mean, badly, really badly. I'm not going to go into it. And uh, it was extremely, extremely fractious and difficult for a million different reasons. Um, and I left again. And all of that's in the book. And now I don't want to talk anymore about it. Okay. I want to move on to what's good. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. How does the extricated group assemble? What's the, you know, the, the catalyst? So what happened was... Anyway, many years went by. I stopped doing again. I couldn't handle it anymore. After the final days of the fall, and I guess it was like 1997 or something, um, I went on and did other things. Lots of television work. Um, remarriage. Remarriage, yeah. Happy remarriage. Um Fashion, yeah, yeah pug, more pugs. Um, you know, found really found myself again and pulled completely away from music and did other things that I loved and found passion for. Anyway. And we're totally happy and content without music in that period. Or was there always like a slight There was something hole? wrong. There was always something wrong. Yeah. Um, there was always something missing in my soul. I mean, for all intents and purposes, I was happy and content and I was successful at all the other things and there were moments of joy lots of them but there was something missing and and uh i thought that doing unscripted television like on gox fashion fix or all the other things that i did um i did a bunch of different series uh i thought being unscripted was in a way it was you know using my mind in the same way as writing lyrics it was a part of my brain that and it was performing and i it was like especially all the live tv work i did was exciting like all the times and i did, did all the corresponding from ascot with mm-hmm. stuff it was like a sporting event a royal event a live event you know and, and a fashion event all at once it was intense pressure and that that feeling was the same sort similar feeling but it wasn't the same because you don't have the vibration of music. You're, you're, I guess, reacting as opposed to creating, right? You're just reacting to the scenario and the... And you're creating because you're speaking words that are hopefully, like, poetic and yeah, yeah. penetrating, but the, you don't have the vibration of the music. You don't have the vibration of the music. So, uh, but I didn't really understand that. I was just doing what was laid out in front of me and what I was enjoying. But then... Life started to change a little bit, and I wasn't really happy. We had a bunch of shops, me and my husband. He still has a great shop, his own shop, a menswear shop called Mr. Start. But, but I had the women's wear, and we are doing all the buying and doing all the things, and something just didn't, I just wasn't feeling happy. There was something wasn't right, and I, I didn't know what was missing. And weirdly, Andrew Weatherall and his fiance Lizzie, who worked, works for us has worked for us for a long time as the one the right hand person in the shops she said andrew was working with faber and faber and uh 
Viv Albertine was about to bring out a book and they got me the galley copy of the book and they put it in my hand and they said, you need to write your story. And I said, you know, I've always wanted to write my story. I knew even when I was in the fall, it was an extraordinary story about an upper middle class American girl joining a Manchester post-punk working class band in the 80s and playing guitar. It's like a beautiful reverse Cinderella story almost, it's isn't it? It's a reverse Cinderella yeah. that turns into Cinderella. <laughs> but um, so, and I'd made many, many, uh, kept diaries and notes and things like that. But through, it's all written in the book, but the circumstances, all of my uh, belongings were lost. Uh, they were thro- given away by my father, by my real father. I'd asked him to store them in his garage while I was moving back here and he gave it. He gave. I put them in a cooker and stored everything in this like 1950s American cooker. And I said, "Please, can you, he had a five car garage, you know, that he wasn't using?" And I said, "Please, can you just store this till I send for it?" And he gave the cooker to a neighbor. He got in a fight. Gave the cooker to a neighbor, not knowing that every single bit of memorabilia, every magazine cover I was ever on, all of my limited edition records, everything was in it, and all the notes gone. Anyway, so it was from memory. I started writing took me a long time to get to this place of writing, but pretty much um, I wanted to be with Faber and Faber because they had done such an epic job with Viv Albertine. I wanted Lee Braxton, who's the editor, and I went to see him with my five chapters that I'd written, and they signed me within 24 hours, and the book came out. But it was during the writing of the book that Andrew Weatherall, Craig Leon, and my husband said to me in the space of three weeks, you should really pick up a guitar again and write because it's criminal that you're not making music. And I thought, I'm never going to do it. Fuck you. I don't ever want to go back into that again. I really thought that. And I thought, no one wants to see me now. It's done. But because the three of them said it, I took it as a sign. And I thought, well, what will it hurt? And luckily, I had now gotten some of my old guitars back that had been loaned to people who had been looked after them for 15 years. I hadn't played a guitar. In 15 years, I'd not touched one. And I took out Whitey one day when my husband was at work and I had my two dogs. And I took out Whitey, which is my Rickenbacker. And I started playing and it was like, the writing of the book opened the channel of creativity and inspiration that connected me to the one mind consciousness that that downloads information from non-physical energy. And I started writing and it was like there was a sack of material waiting in the ether for me to just tap into it. And it was really that easy once the, the places were in. It was unbelievable. It was like a storm drain opening. Wow. And I, for for about two months, I sat alone in my bedroom every day, playing music and writing songs and weeping because now I'd found a voice that I didn't even know I had. By now, I could actually sing. But in the, in the old days, I, I had a very controlled, angelic, pure pop voice, but it was cloaked in in insecurity because I was always trying to be a perfectionist and really what you need to do is well it was also the perfect foil to Mark's more raw ragged 
yeah, style it, as well, right? Within yeah. The fall oh, in context. the fall, it was it was less so in the fall. I'm talking about adult net. In the fall, Mark was very very good at getting me to either have a bratty voice, which was the a bratty voice that you you actually hear the girl in LCD sound system doing the same foil thing of the bratty voice in the you know. Anyway, but he also was. Um, n- all about imperfection, all about vulnerability, honesty, and first takes. And I learned all that from him. But at the same time, I still wanted to be as good as I could be, and certainly with the, all of the pop stuff with Adult Net. But this, but this time now, I just let it rip. And I, I was like, I don't care. I don't care if it's out of tune. I don't care. I want to get it across, and I want the feelings to come across as pure and honest as possible. So I started writing. I wept every day. It was a huge catharsis. I wrote the book around sometime in the middle of this. I started recording a solo album with my friend John Reynolds, who produced the first Extricated. Somewhere in the middle of this, Steve Hanley sent me a galley of his book, uh, The Big Midweek. Uh, I read the book. I realized fucking how important I was to the fall and to, to, to making that stamp on musical history. I start. I was like, "What are you doing? You need to own what you've done." There's very few women like you. It doesn't matter what age you are. Fuck that. Go out there and just own it. And because and it was also giving me huge pleasure. And it had, it. I had just found the hole that it was inside of me, um, the empty hole in my psyche of not creating music. I was put on the earth to do what I'm doing, you know, and to write and to sing I was meant to do this and I got sidetracked or not sidetracked but life takes twists and turns but now I found my way back again and it feels so good it feels so right this is all I want to do this is all I can do so I stopped everything closed the shops didn't take up the lease like um you know uh stop doing telly for any anything I didn't believe in and anything anything that didn't feel authentic to me it, it was all I could do was focus completely on it so Steve Hanley wrote the book then I read the book and it was real eye-opener for me of how they viewed me as well and what a important part I had played and then the he did a lot a book launch in Manchester and I hadn't seen them for 18 years I hadn't picked up the phone to them I didn't care. I mean, I, I it was too painful. I couldn't listen to the fall either. I couldn't listen to Mark's voice anymore because it it opened opened everything up. I mean, I was done with the breakup because I was by now married and happy. But they, anyway, so I old went old wounds, yeah. Oh, you didn't want to open old wounds, yeah. As Eckhart Tolle would say, the pain body. But anyway, so I went to Manchester with Marsha because I was too scared to go on my own. I was too freaked out, but I wanted to see them. And I loved Steve's book. And I got there and they had put, to, it, for the opening, they'd put together a band. And in the band, I think Paul Hamley was playing drums. Jason Brown was playing guitar. John Robb was singing. They, Una Baines from The Fall was on keyboards. And it, there were so many ex-members there. And there was, there was a Craig Scanlon. And, you know, there was Simon Wollstonecroft. And they were, they were all there. And it was so amazing. It was like a family reunion. And it was the vibe was fucking amazing because everyone had lived their life and all this time had passed and most of them were settled with families and the the anger and the pain and the upset and everyone was out of the fall by then and they were it was all moved on and they put together this band and for the first time 
in years i sat watching with marcia and i saw them play they were mostly playing cover versions but one of them was the cover version of um mr pharmacist with my guitar solo on it and i i felt a fire rear up inside me like a like an all-consuming jet propulsion fire and it was all i could do to not run to the stage push the guitarist <laughs> over and grab the guitar and i was like it's back whatever i was missing is back like the hunger the focus everything and afterwards i went to steve and i said why didn't you ask me to play and they said his his exact words were i wouldn't have had the temerity he thought you we thought you'd never do it you know because all they knew from me is that I was doing television all the time. They didn't know I was, I go, secretly I've been playing and writing again. Nobody knows I'm writing this book and I'm writing, written this. And I really, and he said, oh my God, how about getting together just in a garage and just plugging in and seeing what happened and maybe write something. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. So we did. And it was instant magic. And then he put together, he said, let's get our kid on drums. Let's get Jason Brown and Steve Trafford on guitar. They're both great. And they'd all played in different guises before. So that was the birth of the Extricated. And what year was this? It was five years ago this November. Five years. And you've obviously you're going to put out the third record this, this month. And that's yes, three albums in as many years almost, right? Pretty much. Two albums in one year, actually. Wow. And uh, it took us a while to get the first album underway. We had to find our feet. We started by reclaiming fall songs that we had written during our time and I as a songwriter felt that I had a right to revisit songs like LA and 2x4 and Lay of the Land that I had written and I had my own vision for them and you know uh, as a songwriter just a different interpretation so um, we made that in the beginning we started with those and some of my new solo stuff and then we quickly moved on to writing because everybody in the extricated is a great writer and um and it would have been a great waste right to have not just gotten down to brass tacks and well it just it, it happened organically we didn't know what we're going to do we didn't know if we're going to we didn't know if we make a record get a record deal do this that the other thing we just were doing it for the passion of it and it felt so good and we'd all been in so many bands over the years that when something really works you god you get on that surfboard and you ride that wave because nothing feels so good and it was just the sum of all the parts it wasn't just me or steve hanley or jason brown it was all of us together um and that's a proper band right it's a proper band when it is just as you say it's, it's more than the individuals it's the collective and every time it's the whole it's still every time we go even into a rehearsal room i might go into a rehearsal room in a bad mood or having had like something you know bad happen or um a bit depressed or whatever it might be and immediately playing plugging in and playing the music and singing it blasts anything away and you just connect and it is just transcending was mark still around when you started the project oh yeah yeah he was around for um he was around for the first uh, uh, first three years i think yeah what was his did you get wind of what his thoughts were did he share them with you or could you have guessed he in the beginning was not pleased because he does not like anything threatening or challenging. I mean, it was it was a bit of blowback. I mean, nothing directly to me. Uh, nothing directly to me. Uh, and anyway, it wasn't so much from him. It was from the people around him. But 
what the fans you mean or no god no no? uh no just business people no no like (laughs) hangers on yes hangers on yeah yeah yeah. um and then eventually i think he um i was told by someone that was very close to him that he was actually really proud of what i was doing and that he he said go get him girl you know so i think when that was way later on but it i think in the beginning he was just like you know what the fuck he took it i think i think personally but he needn't do that and i only ever spoke kindly of him and with respect and i still continue to do so and the choices that he made in his life were his own choices they weren't mine and who am i to judge another person i wouldn't do that i'm grateful for the partnership that we had and what we created and nothing lasts forever but both of us I gave him things that he didn't have and I was the writing partner that he didn't have as well so we both benefited equally from that and for that I'm grateful so there was no need for him to attack me and he didn't so I guess the little that I know of him is he's probably one of those people who feeds off a challenge yes absolutely, right? yeah so if you are out there doing this stuff he's like that's going to spur him on it, to get out exactly there exactly what happened yeah and he, it's 100 percent what happened and um so i would notice that we'd be playing in the city with the extricated and he'd book a gig with the fall <laughs> in the <laughs> what, same like following you around the touring routes yeah in the same city but but he'd come on in a wheelchair right which would trump anything i could do yeah you know because the the man was dying and he was he was playing till the end of his life and whether he was doing that because it was spurring him on and i'm i'm happy that i could give him if if i did if we did give him fuel for him to carry on for longer and it gave him a reason then fucking great you know what i mean um we're a very different band than the Fall. And, you know, you can still hear the sonic thread because Steve Henley was in the Fall for twenty years, and you know the sound. We we have that that sound, but we are not that. We are our own entity completely. But that is our history and our our past and our pedigree, and it's part of us, and we're part of them. You know. Can we talk about the new record? Some of the themes. <laughs> yes, yes. There's some heavy stuff going on, right? There is. What can you share? without giving too much away. In the past, I think my my songwriting has been very much, uh, uh, it's always been channeled to some extent and filtered through me, obviously, through my perceptions. And sometimes it's been more like actual stories about stuff, you know. But we've got to album three with this band and we now are firing on all cylinders and moving on to different levels of, of musicality and freedom to create without any confines or limits. Without consciously thinking about it, we started writing this album while we were still touring the last one. I think Crash Landing was the first song. Then closely followed by uh, Waterman, Wintertide, um, sat back and said, holy shit. Oh, I think it was Steve Hanley that said something to me. Everything's about death. And I'm like, yeah. And then I think, I mean, uh, 
it's really, really hard to articulate. So n none of this was conscious. But what happened was there were a lot of things that happened to me in the last couple of years. Uh, oh, oh, but it not, it's not actually about me. This is the thing, is that I think this time I have tapped into a consciousness that's, that, that of, because uh, I believe that you, that when the, we are non-physical energy in a physical body, and I believe <clears throat> that when you die, your non-physical energy goes up to, to kind of collective consciousness, to one mind. This is where the energy goes. And I believe that when you're creative, or whether when you're tuned in, you're able to, to tap into that and feel those emotions feel, right yeah and i believe that i am a channel i am a receiver i am a receiver so down it comes and out it comes and i don't think about what i'm writing i get it out and sometimes i don't even know i can't get to my tape recorder fast enough to get the words out and and so i think i've tapped into we've tapped into this global consciousness of grief and vulnerability that is going on in in the universe right the second so you, you look at every song and the first song strange times it's um it's i mean strange times look look in the times that we're living we've never known this is unprecedented times how bad does it feel out there all the time we don't know what's going to we, we used to have like actual hope about what's going to happen to our world you know and now you've got everything going on it's going crazy and a lot of fear a lot of fear so much fear and it's interesting because although the, the Joker film is kind of set in the 70s, watching it last night, it feels like such a film of today, about today's problems, so it's from a, mental health to a, government cuts exactly. to it's a, it's an absolute... anger, frustration. And, you know, oh, it's just brilliant on so many levels. Anyway, so you've got Strange Times, which is technically about somebody... Um, par partially about bes besides like Brexit and Trump and all that stuff and climate change and everything it's also about uh, a, a boy I knew that was a friend of my stepson who I'd known since he was a teenager um, who had an addiction problem cleaned up and then took an accidental overdose and died so like you have the final verse which is like um, open the curtain reveal the scene of this I am certain, my thoughts are unclean. Shadows of substance on grief-covered mountains, we're all made of glass until we pass. And I just think that's how we all feel, you know. And then, and then the, ne the next song is Hustler, which is about addiction. Um, it's looking at it through a little bit through a gambling addiction, but um, but it's addiction nonetheless. And then the chorus of that is, um, I know, you know, I know, you know, we're just empty inside, but pretending to be whole. I know, you know, I know, you know, you're just a two-bit hustler and it's coming back to crush you. So like all, all your addictions, all the emptiness you're trying to fear, all the false pretenses that you're putting on to pretend that you're not so broken to pretend that you are whole and that your life is perfect it's all fucking bullshit it's and we're all the same 
I've got it, you've got it, she's got it, you know. So, and that's Hustler. And the next one is Wolves, which is uh, about, uh, par partially it's about um, living in a pack with dogs. It's about unconditional love and what dogs have taught me and about being wild like the wolves and running, running free. But again, it's about death and it's about what happens when you lose a member of the pack, whether that be Mark Smith, whether that be my dog, you know, when you lose something that's been part of your thing and the emptiness that you feel. And then you've got the, the chorus there saying, I run with wolves and sleep beneath the stars. The coat I wear is just to hide the scars. The cross I bear is etched into my skin. I run with wolves. They're my next of kin. At times of my life, the only creatures that have been there for me have been dogs, have have taken me unconditionally and been there when everything else is shit but anyway and also the coat I wear is just to hide the scars that line in particular is because again people put on false pretenses to show how good their life is but it's bullshit and underneath we're all scars people on Instagram putting up pictures look at this I'm in a happy party look at this I'm with a famous person here I am I'm in a fancy restaurant I'm on a holiday it's all fucking bullshit it's coats to hide their scars and it's not real and we all have these scars so that's that next one what a man Waterman, which I think is one of my favorite songs on the album, Waterman. <laughs> water, water, waterman. That's about a drug pusher. That's about, again, about drugs. So the whole thing is like uh, delivered as if you're on smack, like slipping like a backbone parasitic hormone, ticking like a metronome. There is no place like home. Dining out on hemlock, punching in a time clock, eating while you sleep, walk, super blood, wolf, moon, get back, get back. Like that's all like delivered. And then the chorus is the drug pusher. Hey, 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 what you doing today? Everyone must pay because this life ain't free, but you can be the very best you, the very best me, your most amazing self. That's what they say when they give you the drugs. So then there's that. And then Dinosaur Girl, which is about antidepressants and depression and I got to thinking for years I was medicated for years I was on antidepressants in fact for the 15 years after I left the fall and never played music or wrote again I was medicated and I blame the medication for stopping my flow to creativity because it well it's a number isn't it and it, so, it closes off so many Nerves and, and same with feeling numb. That mm -hmm. song, for the fall song, that was about that too. That was that was that was when I was first given it. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, dinosaur girl, we it is a number and it closes it off. And and um, but I thought I got to thinking, our whole society. I mean, there are so many people on antidepressants, and I'm not making a judgment on them. For me, I'm I've been off it for a good, I don't know, eight years now. And now look, but for me, but for me, it did help me during a time where I was broken and I'm not, I'm for whatever people they help go. I'm not, you know, do whatever you need to do. I have no judgment, but I got to thinking <laughs> our whole culture practically is medicated. Yeah. yeah. What, what was going to happen 10,000 years from today when archaeologists dig and crack open those rocks and find our 
bones that have been medicated. How is the medication going to affect the bones, affect the earth? What kind of change is this going to happen on all sorts of cellular levels and earth-like levels? And um, really, that's what Dinosaur Girl's about. Like, um, below the excavation lies the remains of a Prozac nation. Just a dinosaur girl, just a dinosaur girl, just a dinosaur girl. The bones are buried deep along with the secrets that we keep, just a dinosaur girl. And I realized I'm dinosaur girl. I'm, I, those are gonna be my bones. And um, also what happens when you dumb down your feelings and your secrets and you bury them, what does that do? So that's what that's about. And then you go on to Crash Landing, which is uh, the first song on side two. That is about it's very, very heavy, this one, and it is very personal, actually, but I didn't realize what I was writing about till way later again. It's about suicide through drugs, and it's an interesting one because that was the first one that we wrote, and Jason Brown sent me it. Jason wrote it. He sent me it, and it was an 11-4 time signature, which is a tricky time signature to write in for lyrics. You have to be quite <laughs> clever. And I love stuff like that because it's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. So I wrote it and I didn't quite understand what I was writing, but I knew it had to be in two parts of the brain. So you have the voice in one side of your brain telling you one thing and you have another voice telling you another thing. And so you're like, have your, your awareness and, and your presence. And then the other side, you have your ego and you're not aware anyway. What it is is um, kind of the narrator on one side of the brain is like telling, showing you the actual stuff that's going on. Like, um, and, and I had to write it in, in syllables because this was the only way I could do it. So one, one voice speaks in eight beats and the other is in three. So it equals 11. The answer voice is in three. So one is uh, someone like narrating the scene and the same voice inside is writing a checklist of how of committing suicide. So um, uh, I can't even think of the, how the words go all, all of it, but but basically the um, the the second voice is is doing this checklist and it's like, I don't even need to read them all, but basically this is the story. My brother, my little brother is dying of multiple sclerosis. He's now at the point where he's crippled, blind, can no longer feed himself, trapped in his body. He's able to speak feebly. His mind is working to some extent. You know, this has been going on for a while. It's kind of emotional at the moment it's re it's really 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 near the end and um so i had to um when i went to see him this year you know you facing the like do not resuscitate stuff and we had to discuss you, you know taking your life to to move on and to stop from being trapped in your body which I wholly approve of. And that's what the song is about. So that, that's that. This is probably one of the most personal ones. So then, then you have... Um, is that one you'll play live? 
we'll certainly have a go. So on Thursday, we're going up to start rehearsals for the live stuff, and we want to play as many of the songs on the album live as we can. We They're tricky, though, so we have to work them out. Uh, well, I mean, we've played them live when we've made the record, but we have to work out how they are on stage and what, what kind of um, samples we're using and stuff like that. So yes, I hope that we're gonna play that live. The second voice is hard, so I'm hoping Steve Trafford is able to do the second voice, but we'll figure it out if he's not. Um, then Wintertide, which is a ghost story of like, um, I, I love Wintertide because there's something slightly psychedelic about it as well. Mm -hmm. And I love it that it's a duet with Steve Trafford and it's a ghost story of two lovers like haunting this, ghostly stately home in bleak winter of the british coast and this haunted garden um i love the harpsichord on it i love the textures on it um then you have wasteland which is about catastrophic climate change and What's, what's going on with this planet and Extinction Rebellion and all, all of that, trying to control the weather and how we can't. And um, I don't know, like, you know, it's pretty intense. And then we have Tannis Root, which is the black magic song about harnessing the dark energies. And, you know, I believe that everything is energetic and there are there are light energies and there are dark energies and you need both of these things to function. Um, so yeah, that's pretty heavy song. Tannis Root is very deep, hypnotic, dark, grinding, Hanley groove. Um, not dissimilar to Alaska on the last album, uh, but very dark. Uh, it, it, and it, it visually, uh, it references Rosemary's Baby and it references a Scandi film called The Border, which were extremely distressing and upsetting and thought-provoking. Had I seen The Joker, that might have been worked in there too. Um, and then finally you have The Godstone, which is, you know, the musical journey of the spirit leaving the body and going up to collective consciousness. Which is obviously firmly what you believe is the next stage for... And, and we've managed to... Life. Convey that musically and lyrically um, on many, many, many levels. So it brings into effect everybody and every influence that are up there. <laughs> you know, every thought. So... And energy and you know since it is death you know embodied in music what a fitting way to end the album how do you find tapping <laughs> into stuff like that regularly night after night on tour does it take its toll on you or are you able to enjoy the process for the the positive experience that it is so i think the album although that although the themes are very very dark the tone is optimistic the tone is optimistic and it's tapping into what we all feel and it's a way to express ourselves through it. It's just, so playing the music is hugely cathartic. Singing it is cathartic and tapping into it and bringing it down is amazing. When these energies come through me, whether from the initial writing period when you have full body chills to when you 
recording it. I mean, I'm just so fucking grateful that we've managed to capture this uh, to the best of our ability on this album. For me, this is the best album I've ever made in my life. A bar none, you know, I don't care what anyone said. People may, people will have other favorites, but that personally for me, I feel like I've finally am approaching or have approached my, what's the word? Potential, potential. I feel I've touched it. I've touched it here. And I am so grateful that it's managed, we've managed to capture this, all of us. Because, um, you know, there were so many stages of everything and you can lose bits of it, 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 it even in the mixing stage. In the mixing stage, even more so, because you, there's a million permutations of how it can come out. But I think, I feel that I've done it. For me, I, I can't speak for anybody else, really. Um, I think Jay, I think Jay, I think the band feels the same way too. I'm sure they do, but I, I can really only speak for me and I'm just utter, utterly grateful that I've managed to uh, put this out there and, and make this. And um, when, when we finished it, when, when Jason and I, Jason and I were mixing it and the, the last song we mixed was the Godstone and when, oh no, it was Tennis Rupert. When we finished, God, it was Godstone Tennis Rupert. We mixed all of it, basically, in one night. And Steve Trafford was there and he had to leave. But when we finished the Godstone, we were sobbing. And I came home and I said to my husband, um, I said, when I die, please, can you just only play this one song at my funeral? <laughs> and um, and uh, he said, okay. And um unbeknownst to me, Jason said the same thing to Sarah Brown, his wife. And also Jason's wife, I have to say, Sarah, Sarah Brown Wood Spencer, or Sarah Brown, um, is an extraordinary uh, violinist. And she did all the string arrangements and, and, and coordinated the quartet, which played on it. Um, and she played the harpsichord, and she added immensely to this album. So I'm grateful to her, too. So, yeah. You seem incredibly behind it and excited by it and enlivened. I am. You know, when it comes out, obviously, in a week or so, there's, I, I hope as many people in the world can hear it, but you never know what's going to happen when you let go of it, you know, and it's out there. It, nothing could happen or something could happen or a few people could be touched for it. I don't know. But all I know is, and all I can control are my own thoughts and feelings and I'm just really, really proud to have made this. You should be. Thank you. It's funny. I, I had on Jazz Coleman from Killing Joke on the show recently. And I was, <clears throat> excuse me, talking to him about how few creative people improve and get better and deeper and more visceral and more vital with age. And he's one of those people. Yeah. Justin Sullivan from New Model Army, who was a recent guest on the show, he's another one of those people. And... I feel like, you know, you and the collective of musicians that you work with are firmly in that school as well of people that somehow get more potent. Because rock and roll is so traditionally considered to be the music of the youth, isn't it? And so many bands will make these statements in their youth and then that'll kind of be it for them. You know, their 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 voice gets lost along the way. Or, but then there's or like, the other side that, 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 that gets more powerful. More potent, yeah. more powerful. I mean, and I think that's because as a human being, I have been able to become really very, very honest with myself. And uh, 
work on things, things about me that were holding me back, um, thought patterns, all kinds of things, and just become really, really truthful with the art form, you know, um, and just put it out there and not that I don't give a fuck, but I can't do anything about it other than put out what feels right to me and what I have a passion. And also I'm just super confident in who I am and I can feel the power. I can feel it and I can harness that fucker and I'm going to gonna go out there and do it until I don't want to do it anymore, you know, until the next thing comes. But for now, it's, it's good and I'm really, really pleased that you said that because I feel the same way. I'd, I'd love to work with Jazz Coleman. I, I see now I'm at the point He's where amazing. yeah, yeah, I'd love, I'd absolutely love to. Work. Oh my God, could you imagine that would be so cool? <laughs> um, but now I'm at the point where I'm super into collaborating with people. Is Thurston Moore a friend of yours? Very close. Have yes. you have you written or recorded together? Actually, we haven't. I mean, we hang out a lot, um, and I've did we play together once at Cafe Oto or did I just play? I can't remember. He just recently asked me also to open for him, just me solo, uh, for something, but I couldn't do it. But um, that that is definitely a possibility. Deb Deb Googe played with us the last time. She's amazing. She she came on stage and did big new prints with us um, when, we, when we played with the Extricated last time. Um, yeah, I love Thurston, but that would also be good. It's, it, it, I think maybe we should do something I think maybe I should just like text him today. Yeah, get on it. <laughs> it's been 30 years I saw coming. him on uh, last Tuesday or Wednesday. He was at the Alice Cooper show. I presume he was maybe there for the MC5 who were opening up, but he was he was there at the gig. You're an Alice Cooper fan? Yeah, I've got a good picture of me and Alice. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a massive Alice Cooper fan. He's great, isn't he? Yeah, so he's entertaining. He was, he was inspiration. When I was a kid, you know... Um, Welcome to My Nightmare. Mm -hmm. That was one of the first ones that I was turned on to because it was on the radio all the time. And I was just, you know, I, I mean, even now I kind of, uh, my makeup style when I'm with the extricated is slightly inspired by Alice. But I the met black him. black eyes thing going on. Yeah. But I met him last year at the VNA. We were invited to this big special thing at the VNA and it was great. I hung out with him and Paul Weller and Ray Davies. And wow. it, I was like, <laughs> I was like in my element. Teenage heaven, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was one of those moments. Yeah. Can we end? Would you mind telling me the story of how you and Donovan became friends? Don. Because he was kicking around Manchester, right? Around the late seventies. I didn't know, but let me tell you the story. So uh, when I was in high school, I had a very early version of a Walkman. And I would literally put on Sunshine Superman. And this was year, I mean, years after it had come out. Well, I remember as a really young child, obviously Mellow Yellow and like um, Jennifer Juniper and all those songs that were hits in America. But I didn't know who Donovan was. But then someone turned me on to Sunshine Superman was about 15, 16. And I listened to it every day to school, every day on the way back, over and over and over, my obsessive compulsive. And I was just in love with his songwriting, in love, just a gentle poet, beautiful, like gentle psychedelia, just fantastic folk. I mean, ugh. and um, years and years later, uh, years later, after I, was, after I left the fall for the first time and, and right at the tail end of Adult Net, when I was with Nigel, I became pretty much obsessed with hurdy-gurdy man 
And I was obsessed with the guitar, uh, the guitar solo on it, which some say is Jimmy Page. Um, and I can't remember if it even is or if it isn't now. And I've asked the question so many times, but in my mind it is. But anyway, um, and we recorded, we were recording at Rack, a Mickey Mo studio in St. John's Wood. And that is where they recorded all that stuff. Uh, maybe it's John Paul Jones on the bass. And anyway, it doesn't matter. Anyway, I wanted to do a cover version for the adult net of Hurdy Gurdy Man. So Nigel Kennedy said he'd play electric violin as a guitar solo. And Stephen Duffy said he'd sing on it with me. And John Leckie would produce it. So we went into Rack and recorded it. And a copy of it still exists. I mean, it's on. you can find it on, on like YouTube and stuff. So... Um, so we recorded it and then somehow someone somewhere got that version, my version of Hurdy Gurdy Man to Donovan. And Donovan immediately got in touch. I don't even remember how, maybe it was the Nigel Kennedy connection and said, that is the best cover version anyone's ever done of that song. I would like to meet you. And we wet ourselves. We we're like, fuck, it's Donovan. <laughs> so um, me, I think it was me, Nigel, Stephen Duffy and possibly Nick Laird Clues from the Dream Academy all went to 192 restaurant in Notting Hill in back in the day and Donovan and his wife Linda Lawrence came in and Linda famously was married to Brian Jones it was like whole rock and roll connection and we became very very close friends and they became my rock and roll godparents and Linda is a a great witch, right? She's seen it all. And she is one of my spiritual advice. She is she are just amazing. So we remained friends for a very long time. And Donovan and I and Nigel played together. We did like live TV together. We played Hurdy Gurdy like live on the Late Late Show. We And we did and we played other things together. It was kind of amazing. And it, eventually after Nigel and I broke up, Nigel then dated Donovan's daughter, Oriel, who was married to Sean Ryder yeah, either yeah, after yeah. or before. And anyway, just had so many connections. So like years went by, we remained friends. And um, one day, about two years ago, a producer, a TV producer friend of mine who I, I sometimes work with, emailed me and said, can, can you, do you have Donovan's contact details? Oh, and I wrote in my book about Donovan and I needed to get him a book and somebody put us back into contact because by then it was like, you know, I had different emails and stuff. So I said, yeah, actually I do. And he said, look, um, um, what's his name? Um, uh, Jez Butterworth, the writer who wrote Jer Jerusalem, wrote Britannia for Sky TV and they're using Hurdy Gurdy Man as the opening credits of the, of the series. And we would like to get, Sky would like to get a hold of Donovan because we'd like to fly him out to Cannes to, uh, to the film festival, uh, to the TV festival, to DJ. We'll pay him X amount of money. We'll fly him first class, da 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 And I'm like, look, let me, put, let me contact him and I'll see if he's interested. So I did and I go, Don, it's bricks, da da da, da this, this. And he goes, yeah, sure. So he flew out to um, Cannes and he DJed with my friend Ian. And while he was there, he managed to say to Ian, he said, you know, they were talking about uh, the trip that the Beatles and Donovan and Mia Farrow and Mike Love all took to Rishikesh in 1968 to study transcendental meditation with the Maharishi. And this was a very, 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 very important trip in musical history because these people who were at the height of their rock and roll fame and debauched lifestyles gave it all up, went for six weeks to like the foothills of the Himalayas and lived in 
in this ashram and meditated night and day. And out of their meditation came 46 of the world's greatest songs, including Hurdy Gurdy. And uh, it was because they were so, because they were able to quiet their egos and connect to the consciousness. So Donovan told Ian that he had rare footage taken on a Super 8 camera. By the way, no press was allowed. Everyone was kept outside and they were all clamoring to know what went on inside the ashram. And um, some film student, an Italian young film student had a Super 8 camera and Donovan had the footage. So Ian came back and told me this and I said, fuck me, we have to make a documentary. It's 50, the 50 year anniversary. Let's see if we can get a documentary made and go back to India, go back to the ashram now, 50 years later what has happened and now because of that trip we have a entire culture of yoga and mindfulness and meditation simply i mean that trip is what brought it to the the wider acceptance of the teenagers and then and to then the west right? to the west yeah. you know and then it spread and spread and now look at us now look at what we have you know and i'm like this is so important so we did we got it together and uh, we took Donovan and we went back and we made this documentary and it, it aired on Christmas um, on Sky Arts and it was extraordinary. And I have to say, actually just thinking about it, so, so when I went back, you know, I'd done lots of meditation and lots of spiritual work, but I'd never done TM. And Donovan insisted, Don and Linda insisted that myself, the other producer and the director become initiated in transcendental meditation. So through the David Lynch Foundation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who I've was, got his little book, Catching the Fish. Yeah, so yeah. He, David Lynch is also in the documentary. So they sent uh, they sent the teacher over to me, us, and in this very room, over four days, we were initiated. In so, here? In, this, yeah. in here, right there, right there. And um, so ever since then, which was a year, May, a year and a half ago, I have been doing TM, and I'll tell you, I think that's why the new Extricated album is what it is, lyrically for me. It's because of TM. And because I'm now able to tap into the pure source. And that's why I think it's gone on to another level, like lyrically for me. But anyway, back to Donovan. That, so we took him back and it was extremely moving. And it, it was the most like mind-blowing, surreal, trippy experience of my life. And can you still go onto the Sky Arts platform on Now TV and things like that and view the documentary? Probably. I haven't checked. I don't go and check on all, all the... I don't really go back and listen to stuff or watch stuff uh, I'm assuming you can yeah. I think they're selling it to the world I mean I don't know who's going to buy it whether Netflix Amazon I don't know where it's, it's going to go but it will go somewhere it's very low it's a very good feeling thing and in it I get to sing I sing hurdy-gurdy with him mm -hmm. it's so great and the ashram is was it was like a ruin we got there it was like the jungle had reclaimed it it was so haunted and so incredible the energy was amazing. It was wild. It, and it was basically a bit of a shrine to the Beatles in the ruins. But you could still go to the Maharishi's house, which is like, I mean, it's like a few walls left. And it's very, it's very amazing. And it was, it's, it's a tiger sanctuary, actually. <laughs> it's crazy. Bricks, thank you so much You're for so a lovely afternoon. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so thank much.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.